I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Moulin Rouge, the 2001 film. Michael, pronounce the exclamation point. I did. I, <laughs> I tried to be as excited as without yelling. Try it again. <laughs> Once more with feeling. <clears throat> Today we're talking about Moulin Rouge! <laughs> The 2001 film directed by Baz Luhrmann, screenplay by Baz Luhrmann and Craig Pierce. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Arand. Hello, everybody. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Calleros. Hi. Before we dive into Moulin Rouge and all the things that we want to talk about, our question for Spotify listeners is, what is your favorite song from Moulin Rouge? I want to know. I'm really excited to read them all and then listen to them all, probably on Spotify plug spotify there you go so let's dive in so moulin rouge let's all talk about our first experiences with this film for people our age (laughs) this was a film that you had an opinion on i think generally speaking and this is where brian it'll be interesting to see if the the slight age difference that we have now was created a different experience for you Eh? (laughs) leave uncle brian alone I was, yeah, 14, I believe, when this came out in high school and at the height of hopeless romanticism and getting into film. And this film was just to borrow Alex's phrase, this was a cinemagasm, if ever there was one. <laughs> Perhaps my first. Wow. <laughs> you, were, you were a cinemagasm virgin until this Aww. movie. Oh, cinemagasms for the very first time. So many of us were. <laughs> yes. I don't remember where I saw this movie for the first time. It's kind of like Star Wars because I've just I've seen it so many times. Mm-hmm. It's like it's just always been with me. But I was <laughs> obsessed with it. And, you know, the way, you know, movies at this time, they would reveal certain aspects of filmmaking because they were so obvious. So like American Beauty, Road to Perdition taught me about cinematography because the cinematography is just so beautiful. And The West Wing taught me about dialogue or whatever. Mm. Moulin Rouge taught me what the power of editing could do. And Mm. we're Mm -hmm. absolutely going to talk about that. But so I want to hear from you guys. Trisha, what was your first experience and your first thoughts about Moulin Rouge? I saw Moulin Rouge in theaters and it is like, especially back in in that day for me just like check 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 all of my boxes it is so melodramatic and crazy and <laughs> this like wild ride of emotions it's all romance it's all music and and just like feelings all the feelings about life and art and uh, what freedom beauty truth and love i think Mostly. (laughs) And it was, I, you know, had a Moulin Rouge poster on my bedroom wall. Yes. Mm -hmm. It was one of like my four bedroom wall posters. It's like that and the Matrix. (laughs) And (laughs) it is such a celebration of what art does and can do, right? Like it encourages this outpouring of just like raw feeling. And it's not cool i'm gonna say (laughs) in the literal sense right if you think about the origins of the like idea of cool 
which literally means not hot or not passionate. Mm-hmm. It is the opposite of that. It is incredibly mm. passionate. It wears its heart on its sleeve and wants you to do the same as an audience member. And so it is not in any way cool. And fortunately, I was not cool. And so this was my movie. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> that's how I feel. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, And, and I think the, the context also for like for younger listeners um, <laughs> to like understand because I recently was on a Nebula original with Alex from the YouTube channel Technicality where he does this thing where he he does this show where he interviews oh, old yeah. people about movies like and us like right and so like Moulin Rouge came out the year that he was born and so I had to kind of like <laughs> remember okay this is like you don't understand like the summer that it came out like the soundtrack just everything around it yeah like i feel like there's just a lot lady marmalade right lady marmalade and all this stuff on repeat but it was definitely a movie where you kind of loved it or hated it and there was there was conversation about it even back then the context of moulin rouge is really fascinating yeah brian what was it like for you what was your first experience with moulin rouge the way i was told to see the movie was my very dear friend, Abby, who was my sort of Winnie Cooper in middle school and high school in the beginning (laughs) of college. We had some sort of drama where we decided to take some time apart, like even as friends, just like, let's just kind of not speak for a while. I asked her about it the other day. Neither of us can remember what the hell it was about. (laughs) It was because you were secretly in love with each other and you couldn't be friends at that time. Well, sure. But that, but that was true of like the previous seven years too. (laughs) And we were fine with it. The silence was broken when she left a message on my answering machine one day, which I'll explain to you kids what that is later. And uh, she said, Hey, I know we're not supposed to be speaking or whatever, but if you haven't seen Mulan, Rouge yet you have to go see it okay bye and uh, so I did I went to the theater I think by myself and uh, just put myself through the experience of Moulin Rouge especially in the theater especially by yourself just sort of letting it all wash over you and all was right with the world um, I was in college when this came out so and I was a theater kid with theater friends so uh, this became the movie we were just running around singing songs from all the time I also had a Moulin Rouge poster on my my dorm room wall in, uh, in my like sophomore room you know <laughs> exactly i would i would wear my black coat with a collar up while walking of through course. the cold and pretend i was oh ewan God. mcgregor and the yeah. roxanne scene yeah and uh, and yeah I, it's a movie that i love i've always had a little bit of a love-hate relationship with it though because i'm not a big fan of the cartooniness of it the, the over stylized sort of nature of it uh, i'm not a big musicals guy i'm not a big farce person and i'm not a big mm. like stylized movie guy either mm. granted there are musicals i love <laughs> there are stylized movies i love there are like ridiculous comedies i love but it's sort of like a lot of things that i'm not crazy about all in one all in like the first act of this movie it right. front loads all that stuff right exactly yeah. <laughs> So, so yeah, overall, I love the movie. It has some stuff that drives me bananas that uh, that we can get into a little bit later. But uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a movie where the good outweighs the bad very much. And I enjoy watching it. I hadn't seen it a little bit. So it was really fun to rewatch it for this. Yeah. And, and I think, again, like you're saying, that the beginning basically dares you to like keep yeah. watching. It tests <laughs> like, you, for sure. Yeah. It's like a literal acid test. Right. <laughs> right. And I, like, I remember watching it like with my parents and like different people that I would show it to. And you could kind of feel whether or not people were like, oh, we're on board this train or like, no, I'm going to get off this train. Yeah. And it's, yeah. Yeah. Milan Rouge. Cool. Alex. <laughs> so it's interesting because I did not see this movie when it first came out in theaters. And I remember following the Oscars really closely that year because it was Fellowship of the Ring year uh-huh. also mm-hmm. and right. i was of course rooting for lord of the rings at the oscars and i saw these clips from moulin rouge 
in the Oscar ceremony. And there was such a wide variety of types of clips. There were these, you know, I think for some categories, it was showing some of the early stuff of like the can-can dancers and just like complete chaos, like goofiness. And I was like, okay, what is this movie? And then Nicole Kidman was nominated and they showed her performance from like the very end of the movie where she turns around and begins singing Come What May. And mm-hmm. it looked like this, this like really beautifully done moment. And I was like, wait, that's like a different movie. Wait, what, what is this movie? Mm-hmm. So I, I had this very strange, like, how can this all be one movie? I don't know what this is. And I kind of just forgot about it because it just seemed so strange to me. And then the summer after high school, I went on like a date with a guy and <laughs> we were both going to go off to different colleges. And so it was like, you know, it was like, whatever. But you know, it was my first like time dating anybody ever. And so I was like, oh, it's so tragic. Like, <laughs> we're going to different colleges. So it just can't be. And, you know, this is this you know, it is what it is. And my my really good friend Megan in high school, she she was like, you know what? I think I have the movie for you. We wow. have to watch Moulin Rouge. And so she like picked it out for like my, you know, woe is me. Sad. Yeah, like th- th- we can't we can't be together. And uh, and we watched it and she was absolutely right. It was it was exactly <laughs> the right movie for like that, you know, it wasn't even first love, it was like first date, you know, but it was <laughs> right. it was that that same mindset of just like everything is melodramatic and tragic and life right. is hard and love is hard and <laughs> you know, all, all those teen feelings like the movie so just many. channeled all of it a thousand percent yes and so i loved it I, I i was definitely not necessarily on board in the first act i was very unnerved by it and was not sure what i was getting into by the end of the movie i was just so like sold. I absolutely loved it. And I thanked her for making me watch it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. We've used this word melodrama a couple of times now. And it reminds me so much that I don't remember. I don't think this happened in the theater that I was in. But, you know, the tradition of melodrama, which this is borrowing heavily from, invites audience participation. Mm. And so, like, you're supposed to boo the villain and cheer when the hero comes on and you know, be loud and cry and basically and laugh as loud as you want as well. And I showed this recently to a group of teens who had never seen it before. And they pretty immediately, I mean, they were, you know, this was right before COVID started. It was in February of 2020 that I showed them this movie. And they were pretty immediately like in that headspace Mm. where they started having vocal reactions and they were like throwing popcorn when the duke was on screen and like (laughs) like full-on melodrama kind of reactions which i think is what this movie wants from you right and and maybe you know as you mentioned brian maybe it's hard as an audience member if you're not in the right headspace or you have different expectations to like be thrown around like that with your emotions. Cause it does feel like a roller coaster ride where it's trying to give you whiplash, where it's like, now mm-hmm. cry, now laugh. Like, you're like, oh, what am I doing? <laughs> One thing that I've learned when reading up more about the making of this film was how much of the inspiration came from Bollywood, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is a a form of of this kind of like wild tone swinging melodrama you know, crazy dance numbers, things that just almost feel like too big and too out of control to be reasonable. That's like the Bollywood <laughs> vibe. And and Baz Luhrmann actually was in India researching a different project. And he went to a, like a big movie theater with like 2000 people packed in 
and saw this like three hour Bollywood epic. And he was saying it, the audience was booing and cheering and laughing. And, you know, I don't know if they had popcorn, but they would have been throwing popcorn <laughs> if they did. Yeah. He had this thought of like, wow, everything right now is so cool. As you were saying, Trisha, like American cinema yeah. was aiming for cool, was aiming for kind of ironic coolness. That was what was in. And he was wondering and kind of challenging himself, can I bring this Bollywood exuberance to an American audience? Mm. Can I translate this into one of my films? Because he really loved the experience of being in that Bollywood theater where you can have total farcical slapstick comedy one second and then have the most tragic, dramatic thing happen the next second. That that kind of experience that he had in that Bollywood theater, he wanted to replicate that in Moulin Rouge. And I think, you know, it's it's there. For sure. It's cool to hear, yeah, that kids these days can still like get into it and click into that mode. Well, there's no better time to click into that mode than when you're a teen and right. your yes. hormones are actually racing and <laughs> so, doing that to you at every moment. Right. So. Also the moment that I think I've never watched this movie and had someone not gasp, but like during the midpoint section where Christian, when uh, the Duke is like, why shouldn't she choose the Maharaja? And he says, because she doesn't love you. Yes. Like everyone gasps. <laughs> yep. Like even if it's been completely quiet the entire time, everyone is like, oh no. <laughs> like, and that's, that's just so, it's so cool to be able to make a movie that pulls that out of people, that yes. forces people mm -hmm. to have that kind of reaction. That's the thing that I appreciate about Baz Luhrmann generally is his kind of approach to cinema where, you know, it's not trying to trick you into thinking what you are watching is reality or to mm -hmm. judge it as if you were watching a real anything happening. <laughs> um, you know, the, his movies very clearly from the beginning, like literally. In <laughs> Open with a red curtain parting. Here yeah, you are right. in a theater. Yes. A crazy conductor, like kick conducting. I love the conductor. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. It's just so clearly signaling to you, like you are going to watch a movie. I'm going to tell you a story. This isn't reality. Go on this like adventure with me. And I really appreciate movies that do that because most don't like most again try to hide it in some way and i think you know part of i i'd seen romeo plus juliet mm -hmm. uh, before watching Milan rouge and like i kind of had a love-hate relationship with that you know i think we watched it in my ninth grade english class and it was like yeah it's cool that they're like modernizing shakespeare but this is a little much also but that's kind of cool at the same time like there's just a lot of complicated feelings and i feel like Milan rouge is like the right setting and a world like all of those pieces come together it's a movie about show business and yep. so like the style and the bigness of the show that you are being shown kind of feeds into the themes and everything inside and so it's the, the happy marriage of all these things coming together and i think that's why it works so well for me in this film and maybe doesn't so much in some of his other films when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That was definitely my experience with Romeo and Juliet also was I was like, 
some of this stuff is cool in a vacuum. Like if, I, if, it, if you were just showing me this like five minute short film, that's like Mercutio singing a song or whatever. But when I'm like, you know, like, Oh, fetch me my long sword. Look, the gun has long sword. <laughs> that's the brand of the gun. Do you get it? It's a sword on it. Right. <laughs> and I think that's sort of where things, you know, start to feel a little, I can't help, but get taken out of it. I think when it is like the, the shots in Moulin Rouge where it's like, here's the whole town. Clearly these are all like CG Compton actors just so we could do this crazy push. And like, everything looks completely fake and stuff. And that's a choice, you know, but, uh, but I think it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, but now I'm like not thinking about this world anymore i'm thinking about like what is this thing that doesn't look like a movie and yeah there's just, there's like a, a gaudiness a very purposeful gaudiness to this movie mm-hmm. that i think is just not my taste i think the intro to the moulin rouge the can can like whole number and everything <laughs> i'm just like the, these like old creepy men are singing nirvana at me like right into my face <laughs> And then you have like the sound of music scene, spectacular, spectacular. And then after the first act, then he Lerman pulls away and lets the movie sort of be serious. But there's still this sense for me personally of, oh, wow, what an emotional song. I'm in tears. Wait, why is the moon singing opera? Like, (laughs) I'm like trying to. (laughs) And then, and I've mentioned before how much I hate, like at the end when the gun flies out the window and boops the Eiffel Tower, like right at the emotional climax of the movie. Like, what the hell is happening? But I think for me, the um, sound of music sequence is like everything. It's like maybe one of the hardest things for me to watch of any movie that I actually enjoy. Like there are movies I don't like where I don't like a lot of it. And again, this is all very purposeful. Like, you know, he made the movie he was trying to make, obviously. Yeah. But I'm just like in that sequence where you introduce all these crazy characters, there's like just total chaos. There's extreme camera angles. There's like Looney Tunes sound effects happening all over the place. (laughs) The characters are all insane. The editing is bonkers. Like there are characters who are in different positions between two different mm-hmm. cuts and stuff. Where I'm like, how are you yeah. in a different place than you just were? You know, the uh, after Christian sings the sound of music and the characters are kind of mulling it over. The uh, the pianist is like off music and like doing these like very. I'm just like, what the hell? And, and I think if I never if I never heard of this movie before. And just put it on like I would probably be like, okay, I'm not going to watch the rest of this, you know, and I think that's what's unfortunate about that stylized thing of this movie for me is that that's not what the movie ends up being that it's sort of like all this like cartoony stuff packed into the first act. And then it's like, but we are going to get really serious and emotional later, but you might lose. And, you know, Baz Luhrmann, like you said, it's challenging you to watch the rest of the movie. It's sort of like, look, if you don't like this stuff, then just get out of here because I'm making a movie for the people who do like this stuff, you know, and I get super sucked back into it. Then after that, there's also sitcom logic, like a lot of sitcom logic in the first act where it's like uh, the one he's waving the handkerchief at. Hold on. Let me turn so I can see. Do you mean him? Hold on. Let me turn so I can see. Yes, that's who it is. That's kind of Shakespeare. I think that's like mistaken identity stuff is like Shakespearean kind of references. Yeah. Comedy of errors. Yeah, exactly. But then, the very sitcom thing to me is like, you know, Christian's talking about poetry and Satina's talking about sex. And, you know, it's sort mm-hmm. of like, oh, it's it's very modern what I do. Like, I, I hope you like it. Oh, I'm sure I will. That scene goes on for a long time. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that is the only joke at the heart of the scene. <laughs> it's right. the one joke scene. But I also love Nicole Kidman's like commitment. To that oh, right, for right. Sure. <laughs> like, yeah. She is so committed. Right. But then, yeah, at the same time, 
when we do get into like your song, Come What May, Roxanne, Elephant Love Medley, I'm just like, this is everything I do want from a movie, you know, but it's this weird. The reason I say love hate is because it's like some of my favorite things in a movie that I like and also some of my least favorite things in a movie I like. It's almost like if you would watch 10 minutes of The Lord of the Rings and be like, now here's five minutes of The Hobbit. Now here's 10 minutes of Lord of the Rings. Again. It's just like <laughs> switching back and forth so much between those extremes. But again, once I get over that like hump of that first act, then I'm way into it. And uh, and yeah. Yeah. When I think about this movie, I think about the definition of the word entertainment. Mm. Like, what do we think of as being entertainment? And sometimes that's tragedy and crying, right? Like people going, you know, back as far as theater has ever existed is like, we want to see a really tragic story that ends in like everybody dying. And, and that's <laughs> entertainment right? That qualifies as being something that takes us out of our everyday lives and is entertainment. At the same time, really broad slapstick comedy, that's entertainment, right? And same mm. thing that we have with like the love story here, same thing we have with like the music. We go to concert halls just to see music, to be taken out of our own heads by the experience of music. And that is also the definition of entertainment. And what this is doing is mashing every form of entertainment <laughs> up together right. and throwing it into one movie. And so it's almost like, I don't know what genre you would call this. It's a musical, but like, is musical itself a genre or is it a form, right? It's a format, right? Sure. So what genre, I don't know, you would call this exactly. It's Bollywood. So, it's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's so unto itself entertainment it's spectacular you might say <laughs> it is the show they're putting on you might even say it twice right <laughs> exactly yeah i mean there's so much i feel like in this to, to unpack and everything that you were talking about brian is i think super valid and and relevant for sure where do we want to start the editing and as you're talking about that yeah the sound of music scene is insane <laughs> in every conceivable possible way the way that is put together as you detail is insanity and i think for me what works for it and what ultimately the purpose of is it's almost like we go into a, a movie theater with a certain set of expectations about this is film language and this is how a movie is going to reveal itself to me. And the first 20, 30 minutes of this movie just like smash that to pieces. Like mm. it just completely breaks any expectation you have of how a movie is supposed to tell you things. Yes. And <laughs> that is an uncomfortable experience for sure and a risky thing to do. But I think for me, what it allows is for it to then reassemble itself and and put you in a framework where like I'm more open to the same kind of experimental crazy editing that doesn't make sense there isn't like continuity is not a thing that we are no. concerned about mm -hmm. in any shape or form later on is used to really enhance the emotion of these moments and and work with the music and all these things it kind of creates this freedom and this new way of being able to convey all these things that I think is really powerful later on. And I think it only has the, like the leeway to go to those places because it's already been stretched past the breaking point earlier. And so I think that's, that's just one of the interesting kind of weird things about this movie is that it ultimately is something unique and, and has a language unto its own, but it kind of has to traumatically break <laughs> what we want from a movie right. first in order to do that. Exactly. 
It's interesting because I used to be in your camp, Brian, where I kind of gritted my teeth through the first act of this movie just to get to your song, basically. And then Mm -hmm. from there on out, I'm good. Now, when I watch it, I actually love deeply paying attention to the first act of this movie because I no longer am like embarrassed for it or feeling like it's wrong or I need to get past it. It's now I'm more just fascinated with it. It feels like everything in some of these sequences is just like improvised like the filmmaking itself feels like entirely improvised and yet it does and yet it's going in in and out of song and things that have to definitely be pre-planned and like pre-composed and pre-envisioned but it feels so out of control and couldn't possibly be planned right so i think i'm fascinated with it now in a different way than i used to be because how do you do a film that by its very nature has to be meticulously planned feel this way where it's like this seems like a stream of consciousness. This doesn't feel like anybody planned this. This is insane. Yeah. I think part of the thing with the sound of music scene too, is that it's the first really big recognizable melody Mm. from pop culture that we get. So before that we have nature boy, which is an acting Cole song. Yeah. You know, I'm familiar with, but it's not like one of his most popular. You, you for sure know it kind right, of right. songs. And then we have Rufus Wainwright singing a little melody in the background, which is like a French folk song, I believe. It kind of doesn't do much with the music before we get to you and McGregor just belts out the hills are alive <laughs> with the sound of music <laughs> to a very familiar melody. And everyone is acting like they've never heard it before in their lives. And it is very jarring. Now, ultimately, you know, the realization, the movie starts with that and then it takes us through children of the revolution and it takes us into you know the entire can can and nirvana (laughs) yeah david bowie yeah yeah the rap melody and lady marmalade and like yep it takes us into that like mashup scene at the moulin rouge and we start to understand that it's purposefully tapping into you know a century's worth I mean, mostly the last several decades, but really like a century's worth of musical influences and references that are supposed to awaken different things in us that we like. Some are going to be really familiar to the average listener. Some are going to be more obscure. So like One Day I'll Fly Away is not an original song to this movie, but not it's, it wasn't like a smash hit, like something like some of these other ones are, right? Mm. Or that you would definitely be familiar. It's not like a virgin is what I'm saying. Right, right. <laughs> it smells like Teen Spirit or... Yeah. Right, right. So putting The Sound of Music first is, you know, it's the risk that we're talking about for that reason also, because the the melodic, the melody itself is so familiar right. and like such so embedded in in film language and in in, in musical history. You're just kind of like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> what is this? And and it, you have to give it time to get there. And right, yeah. It also smartly sets up the by having the characters have never heard the song before. You know, which is telling the audience this song doesn't exist. But also, this movie is set in 1900 you know, 60 years before The Sound of Music. So it's it does a nice bit of work there where it's like, these songs don't exist in this universe. Also, right. we're going to use songs for whatever the hell time period we feel like. 
and we're just inventing this brand new universe. And to actually have a scene that is sort of built around that concept is a nice way to be like, get ready, because in five minutes or 10, like your <laughs> mind is going to explode <laughs> right. with, with all these references. So we're kind of easing you into Kylie Minogue's going to be a green fairy and yeah, right, we're off to the races. Yeah. And I really love Spectacular Spectacular, which is a melody a lot of people are familiar with, but they, they wouldn't be able to go, oh, that's Offenbach, you know, because they probably don't know their opera you know whatever but like it's just counting on you to know some of it and go with the rest of it and that's a big ask i mean look if, if you're my age you remember that melody from the early 90s when it was pizza hut's number 1-800-831-1111 which i have still not forgotten wow. that damn number because it's emblazoned into my brain we should call that number and see if we can get some pizza <laughs> well it's interesting because boz lerman talked a little bit about the logic behind using contemporary songs or songs from you know what what's been referred to as like the MTV era, like the music mm -hmm. video era, a lot of the right. the big numbers are. And he was talking about one that at some point in kind of theatrical musical history, it was more commonplace for musicals to incorporate popular songs or mm -hmm. pre pre-existing songs. They didn't have to be entirely original. That wasn't expected of a musical. Like I think we now think a musical, if it isn't entirely original, is doing something wrong or it's stealing. Well, it's a it's a jukebox musical. Right, this is a jukebox musical. Right. It's somehow lesser than an original right. musical, yeah. Right. But, but at some point, that was more expected. And there is also this meta aspect to, you know, they had to figure out a way to make Christian's character come off to the other characters as this genius, as ahead mm. of his time, as this modern poet. And what better way to do that than to just have him kind of thinking of all these songs before they came out later. Mm. And instead of trying to make a song that universally the audience would agree is a great song or is genius, take songs that the audience already loves. And mm -hmm. that's that is what the show is going to be based around. We all already love them. So we don't have to be convinced that Christian's a genius songwriter. Like we're already down with your song and all these all these all these things so mm -hmm. that was actually a really smart choice because it is annoying and uncomfortable in film when you have maybe a writer or a, a singer and within the world of the film they are supposedly the best of their time or right right a genius artist and if you don't really like what they're doing it <laughs> it takes you out of the movie suddenly because you're like oh but like is that genius that kind of just sounds bad mm. and to to have him sing the sound of music like nobody's going to think that's a bad song all <laughs> right it's just you know you can't deny the sound of music yeah you're basically describing like studio 60 on the sunset strips like main problem for me is like everybody mm. in that show because it's a late night comedy show and like there are some people that are like they're stars like they can't do anything that's not funny and like the jokes are amazing and you watch it and you're like are they yeah like right it's hard enough to just write a show Sorkin, it's, it's a whole other thing to like write right. a show and then a sketch comedy show within that show that's right. also a genius like it's a <laughs> yeah yeah i i want to just because we need to say her name uh jill bilcock is the editor and she's edited a bunch of movies there's a documentary apparently that came out recently about her and how mm. influential she was Ooh. especially in australia i wasn't it doesn't look like it's available in our region unfortunately but i really want to watch it because just quickly going back to what you were saying, Alex, there's this momentum that happens, especially in this first section that we're talking about, where it's like, this feels out of control and completely unplanned, but also somehow we know it had to be planned. And I, I feel like 
just so much of the movie's success like rests on her shoulders and yes. just the ability to take what was shot. And I think this is part of the benefit of throwing out the rules like we're talking about in this early sequence where it's like we're only limited to shots where there is physical continuity or you could clearly see like the transition from this space to that. Like it would be making this movie with like hands tied behind your backs. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's that's why watching this opening sequence like frame by frame is really fascinating. There is enough connection that you know as an audience member kind of intuitively because that's all that your brain has time to register. Yeah. Like there's a green fairy and she's going to fly here and we're going to go down into there's an elephant and I'm kind of in an open space <laughs> and I think I just went through a door and I think I'm inside somewhere now and like there's there's like 10 shots stitched together within you know 24 frames but somehow <laughs> it's done just right and timed with everything that it does take you on this journey and it's yeah it's just amazing to watch and to think about as an editor like this is what film can also do, like there's conventional language, but there's also all these other opportunities at your disposal. When you talk about editing, you talked about you talk about like what's the function of an edit, you know. So if you cut to someone's reaction, it's because we need to see what that character's reaction is or whatever, you know. And this movie is like the function is purely for aesthetics uh, for a lot of the edits. You know, there when Nicole Kidman first shows up and sings her first line. She gets about two words in before we cut to like some random dancers and then we cut back to her. During the sound of music scene, it keeps cutting back to Christian typing at the typewriter. Like, no, we get he's typing. We don't need we don't need to be reminded that he is typing the story because we just spent a few minutes with him as he's typing the story. So it's not it's sort of clearly not there for functional reasons. It's just there for this aesthetic of like this is the kind of sort of music video experience we're trying to give you. I would argue that it goes beyond just surface level aesthetics, because I do agree with what Michael, I think, is getting at that it puts your mind almost into this intuitive state. You're no longer watching for continuity or for like a piecing together of a solid reality, but you're almost more in this just emo pure emotion mind state <laughs> that is just a flow of images and emotion and right. sense, like senses. And it's not trying to convey to you like a solid, like, watch this scene of this reality happening. It's like, no, you're on a wave of emotion and yeah. sense information. Right. And that was, that was all I was saying. I wasn't saying yeah. it's bad to just have sort of aesthetic, like edits just for aesthetic purposes, you know? Right. Well, the other thing that it, the editing really does here, especially during that opening sequence, we're talking about at the Moulin Rouge um, with all of the dancers in all of their amazing costumes. <laughs> yeah. The production design. <laughs> this movie won two Oscars for production design and for costume design, which it definitely deserved. It deserved more than more Oscars than those. But yes. I, when I watch that opening scene and I see every single Can Can Dancer is in a different, amazing outfit, it's tremendous. But when we're in that scene, the other thing the editing really does for us is build out the world. Obviously, there's a huge set. Obviously, there are hundreds of people packed in here. And they're doing well choreographed, very large dance numbers. Like, even when you're watching Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, which is the one, you know, Nicole Kidman comes down from the ceiling. Mm -hmm. There's two parts to that song because we go back to it later. How does she get back on the swing? Don't worry about that. <laughs> Don't even think about it. Even when we're watching that, there's this massive, there's a massive company 
that's dancing the entire time. And not just on the dance floor. They're dancing on the edges in the periphery. And you can see them because we cut to them there, you know, periodically. Instead of taking this enormous, huge, well-choreographed, beautifully choreographed dance number and showing us these really long shots and takes of it, we're cutting around within it, which helps us stay connected to the various characters, but also yeah, is creating the feeling, the chaotic feeling of the world. And it's kind of pushing the bounds of the world out and out where it feels like we're in the room and we are visually looking around and like we're taking in different little moments, capturing the different emotions and little, um, just like little vignettes that are happening at every corner of the mm -hmm. room. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about the first party scene in Gatsby and you get the feeling that what you were going for and that was kind of what you have here that creates that like this is an enormous party and it, it's trying to plop you into what it feels like to be in an enormous party but i think it really works here because of the editing mm -hmm. in a way that it doesn't quite work as well in gatsby well and boz lerman he also said he wanted to make the moulin rouge feel modern to a modern audience like like mm. feel like as epic as the most epic modern dance club and, right. and if you had more traditional editing or shooting of the sequence, it might feel more old timey. Like it's a more old timey kind of exactly. entertainment. Exactly. That's a good point. But the cumulative chaos and like sensory overwhelm of the sequence feels more like a modern club experience. And you, you, you're cutting to all these different dancers and a snake charmer. And it, 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 there's so much happening all at once you have that mm -hmm. sensory overload that I think wouldn't come from a more traditional, like this is a period piece about this Good point. old timey entertainment. Yep. Right. It's one of the few times I feel like I want movies to be in VR just because it's <laughs> right. like, yeah. you can't, you can't show everything in the club and show like the main action that is at the foreground of your story at the same time, short of like some weird picture in picture thing, which I'm glad it's not like a thing that we try to do. So the best you can do is everything you're talking about with the editing in this movie, but it's almost like, I want to be able to look forward at the stage and see what's going on, but also just turn my head around and be able right. to see all the other crazy crap happening. Yeah. While doing all of that, it is also telling the story. Like, right. even if it is succumb logic, you know, you are getting like, okay, she's going to meet with someone, but she thinks it's this person. It's going to be the other. So it is also setting up all of this stuff and all these characters and just, yeah, the, the balance of when you're showing what is pretty incredible. Yeah, that's one thing this movie does really well. The editing, not only in how it's bouncing back and forth between cuts, but also in how it's being paced, is you're always moving forward onto the next thing. Like you're telling a story while also showing this thing and having this emotional beat. I don't know how, I know this was like a, adapted into a stage show in the past few years. I don't know how long it is, but it certainly feels like if you were doing this as a stage show, it would have to be almost an hour longer just to sort right. of do all the things that editing is able to do in this movie. For sure. Yeah. And and that's, I think one of the things that I wanted to bring up also is the dynamics, like it speeds up, it goes crazy, but then it like, it gets quiet. And right. like before we're like Satine comes on, like it's quiet. The color changes the light, mm -hmm. like the just, I feel like she, Jill, the editor is like wielding brightness as a tool. Also, like there's even that moment where like right before a Satine comes out, you see there's a can-can dancer and then she lifts up her skirt and there's this like abrupt cut to just like the white of her skirt and it just like blows <laughs> uh <-huh>. out <laughs> the screen and then it's like cuts to darkness. And so there's 
just visually dynamics happening along with the music as the story is going. And it is really interesting as it then goes into the second act and kind of settles into the story, like we were talking about earlier, it does kind of change its rhythm and yeah, focuses in on this story and and lets you just sit and like, you know, the, the elephant love medley where you kind of just get to hang out with Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman on top of an elephant. Like there are lots of long, admittedly shaky, like techno crane shots. Like I kind of wish they'd stabilize some of that. <laughs> but but there is this room to just kind of sit and sink into their relationship and kind of fall in love with the characters and this place and and all the details that come along with all of that. Yeah, I think it's really striking how little editing there is in some of those sequences in mm-hmm. uh you know somebody i'll fly away elephant love medley there are long takes where they're just on screen singing at each other and they're, they're we're not cutting back and forth a lot and you've got the i will always love you moment where you actually <laughs> circle around them and i that, that's just you know cinemagasm right there the exploding you know i don't know what even describe their surroundings as being just fireworks, fireworks. So, yeah <laughs> right <laughs> wallpaper fireworks right Opera Moon. Yeah. Opera Moon, absolutely. <laughs> I love Opera Moon. I'm, I'm down for Opera Moon. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, I think it's really striking when it gets to that because you have been so overwhelmed by the editing in the first act Yeah, that these moments feel more special in a way because we're slowing down, because we're just sitting with the characters. That, that's another, I think, benefit of that crazy first act is it creates a specialness in these slowed down love scenes. And you mentioned just now dynamics, Michael, and and I think that those dynamics are in the performances as well. Alex, you briefly mentioned earlier how huge Nicole Kidman is willing to be and goofy, right? Like yeah. that is the thing it's about amazing. this when there's there's like the slapstick parts of the humor. Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman and every other member of the cast is not afraid to look really goofy and funny and weird. Yeah. That's part of the other reason I love Spectacular Spectacular. Yes. Everybody is just like, right. We are now in vaudeville, right? And yeah. Like, I love it, but it also helps the dynamics and the performance really land where when they are like in love and there's just these quiet moments between the two of them and they're doing, you know, sort of the more. I'm not going to say it's small acting, but it is like more grounded, you know, sort of emotional, serious acting helps to draw us into those moments even more because we've seen like the big version of it. And then here's the the quieter version of it. It's just beautifully performed by them, but I'm sure also just really well directed by Baz Luhrmann in those moments. Right. Yeah. The spectacular, spectacular sequence is also one of those ones that's just like not really for me but it definitely is like just presented as very per- like you literally have looney tunes you know it's looney uh, tunes <laughs> uh, sound effects happening and stuff and the thing that makes me <laughs> laugh the most is when they're all just bouncing up and down and nicole kidman is one of them <laughs> yes it's I one of my it. favorite shots right. ever <laughs> and i think if she weren't in that shot i'd just be like i'm over it. but because she is and and she's sort of like she has easily the most work to do in this movie because oh, for sure <laughs> yeah even the biggest of characters i mean i freaking love richard roxborough as the duke you know and jim yeah. broadbent but they are playing these sort of one note characters they're doing it beautifully but nicole kidman has to sort of be very serious and dramatic and very romantic and very in love and very insane and over the top and she does she has to faint all the time so (laughs) much (laughs) coughing and fainting and gasping yeah Yeah. (laughs) 
falls down almost as much as Frodo. (laughs) A perfect example of the transition she has to make is the beginning of your song where she's literally Mm -hmm. rolling on the ground, wrapped in a blanket, like doing a fake (laughs) orgasm to his poetry. And then like seconds later is this beautiful shot of her where she's being taken in by his song and just completely changed. And the kind of blanket is coming down. It's, it's always one of my favorite shots. That I think, shot is so gorgeous. I think part of what, why it lands so hard is because you, you've been whipped around by this like farcical misunderstanding scene. And then the song hits and the music swells and their performances are just so earnest. And so when, when they make those transitions into serious drama, into the serious love scenes, they don't bring any of the farce with them. They're just 100% there in this new state and it just lands. Right. I think you get that same dynamic shift in the sound of music scene. It goes back into cartoon world, but for the moment where Ewan McGregor sings that one line, it, Mm. the movie is doing that sort of thing where it's like, you can stop being stressed out for a second and start like, just like hugging this like lovely romantic big moment, you know? And I think that like, it's that same shift that it does when it goes into your song. And even if I don't love those sequences, like when it does do that shift, I'm like, maybe like you're saying all the more, excited to go into that new part because right. because now it's now it's giving me what i want it's extra satisfying when right. when suddenly Ewan mcgregor starts singing and the orchestra comes up it's always yeah. the best and also just b- because nicole kidman as if she didn't have enough work to do she also had a stress fracture uh, yeah. to her rib that happened mm. in rehearsal and then also like broke her leg or something happened where she shot several scenes in a wheelchair Oh my god! Insane. Yeah, I think she, I think I was reading she like cracked or broke several ribs or like multiple ribs during the production. One once from a corset, once from like a Makes dance sense. a dance accident. Yeah, so she, she her body went through a lot in this movie. And there was also like a lot of kind of doomed like productiony things. Like on the very first day of set, they were all set to roll. It was fine, and like we're going to make this movie. And then Baz Luhrmann found out that his father died that mm. day, so they had to shut down. On the first wow. day of shooting. Well, and it's dedicated to his father, this movie. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always liked that, the way that end card looks and just the way it's like animated mm-hmm. and lit. I don't know. There's just something very special about that. But then they were also like racing against time and had a hard out because uh, Ewan McGregor's other great 2000 performance as <laughs> Obi-Wan, uh, Attack of the Clones, was getting ready to shoot in the very same studio. And so they like barely made it and they had to like destroy all the sets because they didn't have time to save them. And so like the elephant and all that stuff, like Attack of the Clones was just like, no, you got to get out of here. And so they had to just like destroy everything. <laughs> My God. <laughs> so just, there was a lot of pressure on the production as if making movies isn't hard enough normally. And as, as if making this movie isn't hard enough. <laughs> right. right, right. Yes. Another thing I, I always think about, kind of going back to Baz Luhrmann's, you know, uh, the Romeo and Juliet, thing that this Mm -hmm. this film feels very similar and kind of borrowing a lot of the shakespearean i guess you know that that melodrama thing it starts with you know the idea of doomed lovers right you know like from the beginning right satine is going to die it's that tragic ending kind of thing it is more powerful to me in this movie for some reason than than in romeo and juliet not to Mm. like i'm realizing i'm opening a whole door into shakespeare (laughs) that we don't need to go through right now but i i feel like that's one of the things that he brought from that movie that fits really well 
in this film that allows it to have fun party scenes and like pure love, but also can go to these like dark, heavy places like the tango sequence, which is maybe the best thing the ever. Best put thing. A, I don't know. Like, that's you know, you can argue about that. This really just I just want to talk about the tango. So I'm just trying to get us to the tango <laughs> so we can talk about the tango. Well, I, I have one thought about that. And then I promise we'll get to the tango because I want to talk about it, too. But thinking about the script, the frame story with Christian sitting typing at his typewriter is kind of what makes this script hold together. Yeah. Because otherwise it really yeah. would not. It would be a complete disaster. Because... <laughs> So many of the beats, especially in the second act, but even going into the third act, are really the same beats where it's like someone noticed that they were together. That person might tell the Duke. The Duke is going to insist that he sleeps with Satine. She's going to get out of it. And that happens like four times. Like, (laughs) that's just kind of what the second act of this movie is. They attempt to raise the stakes on each one where it's like, no, she really is going to have to do it this time. She really can't get away with it. If you didn't have this build toward what we know is ultimately an actual tragic ending. Right. And I think the movie does a good job of making us wonder. We know she's sick, but we we don't actually for sure know that that's how she's going to die. We know that she's going to die. The movie does a good job of kind of making that a a sort of mystery, a little bit of a mystery box where it's like she is going to die. She is sick. But there are other forces at work here as well. So if we weren't pointing towards that actual tragic ending, none of the middle act of this would like feel eventful or like feel like mm-hmm. there were real stakes at all. Once we get through like, okay, you're going to have to to go sleep with the Duke. It's But like she's confessing and it, there are just right. so many. <laughs> and then you have like a virgin, which is, you know, a great, a great little delay in the whole thing. So great. Those beats wouldn't have any they wouldn't be meaningful at all if you didn't have that frame story. And so I do think it's really smart. And I, I think it's also a, a tribute to Ewan McGregor's performance throughout, which, you know, we talked a lot about just now about Nicole Kidman. Ewan McGregor is great in this. He's really adorable and really... <laughs> so earnest. He's kind of just really perfect for it, though, because he has... Well, his smile is so sweet. He has like a twinkle in his eye. It's it's not something you can right. like easily replicate. But his jealousy is also dark. Mm. Right. Which maybe this is how we get to Roxanne. But. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting to it, Michael. We promise. Right. Baby steps. Yeah, I think for me, I was thinking like, how would I feel if I just watched this movie right now out of nowhere, you know, and, and let's take Ewan McGregor out of the equation because you tell me Ewan McGregor is going to like sing and be in love for two hours. I'm going to watch that movie. But but like if it was just like some unknown, you know, actors or whatever. And I think that even if something like Sound of Music scene would take me out of it, it does have that very strong, emotional, romantic a uh, kind of dark opening, what, like you're saying, Trisha, where it's just sort of the woman I love is dead and, you know, all this stuff. He's sitting at his typewriter brooding and everything. And I think that at least is a is a is a glimpse that the movie is like, look, we are going to go here. We are going to go to these right. places. We're going to narcoleptic Argentinian first, but like <laughs> we're going to go like to all these crazy places. But like we do this movie is also this thing, you know, and right. I think that that is sort of that dynamic shift that we that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Amongst the many other things it's doing while doing all that editing, it is constantly foreshadowing things and reminding you, you know, the first right. time you see Satine, there's a brief like dissolve in and dissolve, like fade in, fade out of her dying, like right. yes. taking shots from the end and like, like sprinkling that throughout. So it is kind of constantly reminding you that, yeah, there's this dark place. And I feel like the tango is like the payoff of that like the foreshadowing of like the dark like this is how like serious we're gonna go 
And I just like everything about it is amazing. And I just want to <laughs> just, it's just so good. Like the, the blend of like cinematography and editing and choreography where it's all mm-hmm. telling the story, like all mm-hmm. the pieces are telling the story. And then it's kind of a, it's a metaphor story happening for what's going on. Like there's just all these levels that are happening in this perfect synchronicity. And it's just like, it's pure happiness when I watch it. Yeah. I think it's a great blend of, of the two dynamics sort of coming together because when you are in spectacular, spectacular world or like a virgin world, the movie is very clearly going, look, we're just going to have some fun for a few minutes. You know, there's still like the characters have an objective and you understand what they're trying to do. But the movie is very clearly tonally going, we're just going to have some fun. And Roxanne, at first, you're like, oh, it's another kind of fun thing. Like they're covering Roxanne, which is already like kind of a silly thing. And like, (laughs) you know, the Argentinian is kind of like a little bit of a cartoony character is the one sort of driving it all. And they're making a tango out of it, which is funny, but it doesn't get too cartoony. It's sort of like in this larger than life musical world, but it's not. Spectacular, spectacular, obviously. But then you shift into Ewan McGregor saying, you know, his hand upon your hand, his touch, whatever, you know, those lines are. And you're like, oh, okay, this is now we're getting dark. We're getting jealousy, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then you crescendo with him, you know, actually when Ewan McGregor starts like actually singing and he's just so broody with his collar turned up and everything while the rest of the song is also coming to its crescendo. So it's like, one of those moments where the two sort of extremes of this movie come together in like kind of a perfect way. Roxanne makes me think about the phrase, the promise of the premise, Mm. because it is taking a song that you will for sure recognize from pop culture. Most people, maybe not youngsters from pop culture will recognize transforming it into this operatic, very dramatic, brilliantly choreographed dance and song number interwoven with original like music and musical sort of cues that are being sung by the characters married into the plot of the movie and then incredibly beautifully filmed and cut together. You're dying for it to do this the entire time and it gives it to you in Roxanne. There's an audible gasp um, or there was an audible gasp among the teens that I showed this to when we got to the Roxanne scene because it doesn't immediately resolve into the melody, right? It starts off with this just like cool violin note and they're going to talk about we're going to do a tango now, which already a, a tango itself is a powerhouse of a song and dance. And so it's like, we're going to do a tango, which is this really intense, you know, almost like fight of a dance number. And it starts with that violin melody. And you have the Argentinian talking, starting to tell this story. And then when it resolves into the melody of Roxanne, every teen in the room went, (gasps) Like that, where they were just like, oh, my God, because I, they probably, you know, they don't know where they know Roxanne from. It's like their parents are listening to it right. on the radio, maybe while they're in the car, you know, or whatever. But it is it's drawing on something deep, like a, a deep, like melodic thing from pop culture that we're familiar with while doing all of the story and emotional things at the same time. Ah, it's so good. <laughs> The other great thing about the sequence is it's a cross-cut sequence with Nicole Kidman's character, right. you know, basically being like assaulted by the Duke in the climax mm-hmm. and the way everything is cut together. You know, we talked about the Christopher Nolan cross-cut. I mean, this is a cross-cut. <laughs> <laughs> it is cross-cutting in this, once again, in that almost non-linear, non-logical 
you're just on this wave of emotion and build. That's why the editing is so astounding because you I don't I don't know how you could like think this through. Like you'd have to just feel it in the edit. And yeah, she she felt it. <laughs> yeah. I think this is the sequence that made me be like, oh my God, editing. Like that's like a thing <laughs> that can happen. Editing. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and yeah, like if you like truly like take the scene and like watch it frame by frame, like watch every shot because it the same way you're saying, Trisha, like how it's the promise of the premise and all all these other ways, it's it's doing all the editing language that has been established within mm-hmm. this world here in full effect. It starts mostly conventional, like you can understand space and time and things are kind of playing out naturally. But as the song builds, as it's doing more of this cross cutting, you know, to Nicole Kidman's story, you know, you see a flash of, you know, the Duke opening the the box with the necklace in it. And like, you see her reaction for like three frames, like just a little like taste. And it just, it starts <laughs> like, it's just, it's having so much fun, but it's, it's so with the music and with the story right. and mm-hmm. these little like tiny imperceptible ways. Like you said, Alex, like you can only, like it's the kind of editing you can only do when you're like really feel it. And when you're completely in sync with, what the movie is trying to be it's so well married to the music and that that's what's why you yeah. can get away with three frames on her face is because there might be a quivering of the violin and that and during those exact three frames and that synchronicity just creates a flow in your brain as you're taking in the scene and the narrative element that they overlay onto the song like that Roxanne is a song that has kind of a narrative element to the lyrics anyway, but then he's like, this is a, a song from Buenos Aires. And like, this is, you know, the story of that we're telling. And the, the choreography is also telling a narrative, which is very, you know, is a meta narrative or like a, a reflection of the, the what's happening with Satine's storyline and Christian's storyline anyway, about jealousy and this like, yeah, feeling of betrayal and all this stuff. There's a complete narrative arc to the sequence and to the song that is built into the music, into the edit, into every performance. Um, Caroline O'Connor as Nini, you know, who's the central dancer in this, is unreal. Her performance at the end, I just think of that, the glimpses we get of her spinning, like that beautiful like pirouette is just, uh, it is creating that entire journey that the song takes you on of like, here's the opening, you know, here's the exposition of this little mini story this little mini arc we're going to give you take it all the way to this climax and leave you with this like tragic ending it's gorgeous yeah and it's definitely it's doing what jukebox musicals should do which is we are using uh, an existing song to do something narratively you know i think as a huge nirvana fan like when it smells like Teen Spirit starts. I'm just like, why? What is this? I don't, you know, like, what are you doing here, song? It is really interesting how, like, Nirvana fans seem to be, like, pretty upset about <laughs> that. Yeah. Like, there's, like, yeah. a subset of people that are, like, really offended by that song. Which I, I feel like Queen fans would be more into the show must go on in the way that it's used in this. Mm. But, yeah. I'm not offended by it. It just, like, I didn't care. I wasn't like, oh, my gosh, the song, you know, I grew up with is in this movie. Right. As opposed to... The Elephant Love Medley and Roxanne and at a lot of times where it's like, oh, we are we are actually taking lines from the song or or segments from the song and using them for a narrative purpose in a way that feels like it blends together and that kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like the show must go on is kind of like low key. My favorite, like I love the tango. I love the Elephant Love Medley, but the show must go on that sequence. There's just so much 
emotional mm-hmm. baggage and the performance like Jim Broadbent is just like so yes. great. I love him mm. in this movie so much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just, you know, I do feel like some of the maybe weakness of the story is, and maybe this is part of the melodramas, like sometimes the motivations you don't super feel or you're not completely on board with of like, yeah. you know, Satine's going to leave and go be happily ever after. But now after 30 seconds, she's decided she can't and she's going to lie to Christian. Like it's, it just happens very quickly. And I feel like the movie is less concerned about like getting you to buy in with the mechanics and logic of it uh, as much as just the emotion of it. Right. Obviously. It's opera logic is the thing. Right. Mm-hmm. We go right. see operas that are in different languages and we just kind of are like, all right, that guy <laughs> is going to fight that guy now. And you're just kind of there. You don't really need to understand why. Right. Right. Because you're just there to be entertained by the opera of it. So I feel like there's definitely some opera logic that's happening here that the film is not too worried about. Just you roll with it. Two things I'll say about that scene that I think you're talking about, Michael, where Satine is really telling Harold, like, I'm leaving. He loves me. I don't need you. I don't need the Moulin Rouge anymore. And then he stops her in her tracks with, you know, you're dying. I love that scene from a writing perspective, actually, because it's very on the surface, the tactics that are being used. Like Harold, like uses Mm. various like reasons why she should stay until it's clear she's going to walk out the door. And then he drops the you're dying. So I think it's just a nice thing to point to of like, here is a character trying to get something out of another character, trying different tactics. And then they, bring out their like nuclear option. And I also think that the operatic thing Trish is pointing to that this movie does both here and then I I want to talk about the ending, how the ending plays out. There's a shortcut you have with music where mm-hmm. you have Satine go through a kind of an entire process of accepting reality and grieving it all in a few moments when she sings this like reprise from One Day I'll Fly Away, where she changes the words to say, today is mm-hmm. the day when dreaming ends. That is all you need. Like, like you just need her to sing that line with her looking at the birdcage. And that's all you need to know. 14-year-old Michael was like, wait a minute. This is symbolism. Yeah. I think I figured it out. <laughs> this shot is symbolism. They did a thing. And it goes straight from there into the show must go on, yes. which, as you're pointing out, Michael, does a lot of narrative work where there's a really hard switch. And The Show Must Go On is a short sequence by comparison to a lot of the other ones Mm -hmm. in this movie. But it is doing plenty of narrative work. And it finally gives us... It finally gives let like gives us Jim Broadbent, which we've been like missing this whole time uh, (laughs) since the can-can, basically. It highlights that critical switch that leads to the crisis for the characters and nicole kinman plays it so beautifully and she looks so cool as she's walking out of the theater with a beautiful cinematography and the lighting it's so good i remember them talking about in the commentary like it was all shot on stages there was no exterior shots and for that sequence they basically got every light (laughs) that they had to try to create the look of sunlight and like almost burned everything down love it but it's so worth it. <laughs> Absolutely worth it. Right. And it's doing the thing that you're talking about, Brian, where it's like, it, you know, it's using that jukebox musical thing. It's using the song and the power of the song to put you like right in the headspace with all the characters and you get it. And yeah, just the build up again to the crisis, like you're saying. And then I, I love I feel like this movie has just the best like 
break in like the buildup to act three is just so yes. intense where it's like Christian's sad, but he has this, this monologue. He's going to sell his typewriter. And it, like, and again, it's this really quick switch where like the motivations are sort of like, well, Toulouse came in and like told me things and now I can't get it out of my mind. <laughs> but then it goes into like, so I had to go back to the Moulin Rouge one last time. <laughs> and then like the sped up like hands, it runs into the carriage for some reason. Then it goes in and then bam, <laughs> you're in act three. And then we're into the crazy like their actual <laughs> musical which begins with an actual bollywood you know insane <laughs> right. song right <laughs> insanity yeah going into act three which i think is my favorite sequence of the film which maybe is obvious for me because i tend to just be obsessed with endings that stick the landing you know return of the king or anything anything that sticks the landing and gives me that emotional payoff i'm just always so i guess just i just have gratitude for the film for completing the experience giving me more than I even expected and just leaving me feeling like you did it. You did it, director. And the finale does that for me because it uses the musical format to essentially solve a relationship with a single song. Like their relationship is brought to the lowest low. I mean, Christian literally like insults her on stage in front of everybody, says you're nothing to me, walks away. And then somehow with a single song and finale, you completely buy that everything is healed between them and all is right in the world before then she has her tragic ending. I think that's like magical. Like I, I can't believe that this form, the musical and those performances in a song can actually believably take these two characters from their lowest low to their highest high in like three minutes. <laughs> it's, and there's something magic about that that I think can only happen in a musical which is why I love it so much, because I think it's the ultimate usefulness of this format to tell a story. Because I, I don't think you can make those kinds of emotional transitions without the power of music. It's, it's the only way you can like believe it in your heart when you're watching it. Well, the gauntlet is really thrown down when you do a musical, because even a jukebox musical, you basically still have to write an original song. Like. Mm-hmm. You kind of can't pick any song from pop culture to be your like big song. So you still have to write an original song and come what may is a really, really good one. And so and the fact that it's a reprise, there's a reason why musicals do reprises. Mm. It's because they lay groundwork, emotional groundwork, and then they drill back into it. To get your emotions back at the end, it is really clever. I mean, there's, a, again, this is a very, very old trick in the book. I say trick. It's a tool. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's not a trick in the sense that, like, it's not cheap. It's hard to do well. They set up this beautiful thing and they give you a meaning for it. It's the same thing when you use any sort of symbol. A melody is also doing a symbolic psychological thing to you. Yeah, right? a motif. Yeah. Where when you recall it and bring it back, yes, a motif, exactly. Um, a light motif, as it's called in music, right? When you bring it back, it brings back those emotions for you. And I think this is the melody and the execution of Come What May at both times, but especially during the finale, is just this is what musicals do at their best. And here it is for you. Well, and it's it's that power of the editing, too, where there is a lot of chaos up to that 
pivotal moment. There's mm-hmm. uh, the Duke's bodyguard is trying to kill Christian and they're fighting and Toulouse is up in the rafters trying to shout down at them and it's complete chaos. And then everything slows all the way down for this moment. It's completely silent as Satine turns around and begins to sing. And the beginning of the song is very stripped down. Like There's almost no mm-hmm. music at the beginning and it doesn't really swell until Christian you know, responds and walks back towards the stage. So yeah, it's just all the tricks that we've, all the tools that we've been talking about <laughs> that this movie has used to make things land. Right. Like that I, to me is the ultimate moment of things landing is, yes. and, and that's what you want from a finale. You want time to slow down and you want it to have slowed down. Like you want to sit in this climax moment with like time standing still. And, and the movie does it a hundred percent. Yeah. Very much. I think that's a great way to lead into what are some lessons that we're going to take away from Moulin Rouge. Trisha, you want to start us off? I have a relatively quick lesson, but watching this again, especially when I was watching it with the young people that I showed it to, um, they really found the Duke to be a very, very upsetting villain. And I think he is. And it's, you know, Richard Rothberg is great in this. But the design of the Duke on the surface doesn't necessarily seem like it has the ingredients for a really menacing villain. I think it was in the Devil Wears Prada video, we were talking about establishing the power of the antagonist. And the Duke doesn't immediately come across as being particularly powerful. And for most of the movie, he's being an idiot, right? Where it's like everyone (laughs) in the entire Moulin Rouge knows that she's in love with Christian. And he's the only person who's so deluded and so stupid that he can't see that. There's a lot about him that like on paper isn't that scary or formidable as a villain. But one thing the movie does really well is tap into how dangerous his insecurities are. Yes. and. I just think there's a really well-observed realism to it that really imbues him with a lot of menace, actually. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this is like in the conversation around like sexual assault, you know, sort of me too kind of things. The reminder is that men are afraid women will reject them and women are afraid men will kill them. And that piece of wisdom is really embodied in this dynamic between Satine and the Duke. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's a real dynamic that gets women killed every day mm-hmm. because men can't deal with rejection. Again, he's kind of a one note villain and that's kind of his only note, but it's a strong enough, well-observed enough note that it does make him effectively scary within the world of the Moulin Rouge, where she, her entire job is to fool him. And if she can't do it, then he will kill her essentially or kill the person she loves it creates a kind of baseline set of stakes for everything that unfolds after that. It's smart character design. And it's, again, like I said, brilliantly played um, by the actor here. So, yeah, definitely. I think it's, it is sort of, there's an unraveling of his character too, that sort of Very much. fits tonally with the movie. Cause at first he is the bumbling idiot. And then he's the guy who will take the money away if you don't do what he says. And then he's the guy who will literally kill someone, you know? And it's like, that's the arc of the movie. And it's also the arc of the sort of the development of his character. You know, you mentioned earlier that the movie doesn't tell you how Satine dies at the beginning. And mm-hmm. it's very smart. And when he's walking towards the stage with the gun at the end, you very well might think he's going to shoot Satine. That's how she's going to die. Uh, and the movie really plays with that expectation that he might be the one who kills her. Mm -hmm. And it does hint at it at the very beginning where when he insists on the contract, 
that like he's like i will have this contract that binds the team is exclusively to me and then he has that moment where he totally devolves and he's like i don't like other people touching my things mm-hmm. he's scary and so yes. from that moment on we know the dark place that his insecurity leads to and it's really violent and so i think that's another part of the big reason that he's able to be a, a true villain for most of this movie yeah like we know so little about him and and really all the characters but like i feel like in this case it like knowing so little about his backstory does kind of just let him be this pure emotion pure menace thing that you're kind of talking about where it's like it's all you need to know is how you feel about him like that is what this character is and it's very clearly communicated and and utilized Mm -hmm. yeah brian what's your lesson so i've never seen jill schumacher's phantom of the opera movie uh but my really? lesson but my lesson That's comes from it okay <laughs> <laughs> but how do you know that you have a crush on emmy rawson okay, <laughs> a friend of mine saw the movie and right after she saw it she said the stage show is so big and impressive for its medium like as a piece of theater it's so big and impressive as a piece of theater and she said the movie was bigger than the stage show but it wasn't big and impressive for a movie uh, instead, it just felt like a movie. So it wasn't sort of within the medium. It wasn't using everything, you know, all the tools that are there is everything we've been talking about. And then I remembered that when I saw the first, the opening shot of Les Miserables, the movie, uh, the recent one, which is like coming out of the water and going over the ship and then zooming into Hugh Jackman. And it's like, whether you like it or not, that is using the medium to do something that you cannot do on stage, obviously. And I think Moulin Rouge is an example of a movie, a movie musical that uses its medium to the fullest. Yes. And it's not just production value. It's also everything we've been talking about, editing, effects, voiceover, nonlinear storytelling, all these things you either can't do at all in a stage show, like editing, obviously, or you just can't do them to the same effect that you can do on film. That's sort of the culmination of everything we've been talking about is Moulin Rouge uses its medium to the fullest. And and I think that lesson doesn't just apply to musicals. Any movie can benefit from utilizing all the the cinematic techniques at their fingertips. Uh, They don't have to use all of them like Moulin Rouge does (laughs) every single cinematic thing (laughs) at once. Um, But, you know, every movie should at least be considering the opportunities that film allows for. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Alex, what's your lesson? Mine is just that earnestness stands the test of time you you could have done like a postmodern take on the movie musical a jukebox musical that is the entire time kind of tongue-in-cheek or wink winky or isn't this kind of silly that it's a musical and i don't think it would age very well because we'd be looking back on it and be maybe kind of annoyed with it now but moulin rouge for me ages wonderfully because at its core it's just an earnest 100 percent classic love tragedy melodrama you know and it, and it it just commits to it and the actors commit to it the director commits to it and it's not trying to hedge its bets by being a little bit cool about it or wink weaky about it it's no this is a full-fledged melodrama love tragedy and we're going to do it and we're not going to pretend like it's something cool or modern in this you know 2001 way and i just really respect the bravery it takes to do that in a modern film just we're gonna make an old-fashioned big love story and we're gonna nobody here is gonna be winking about it we're just gonna do it so Mm -hmm. kudos to Baz Luhrmann and Nicole Kim and Ewan McGregor for just doing it 
Yeah. Yeah. We're talking a little bit before uh, we started recording off mic and I was like, this is a movie where my opinion of it hasn't changed in 20 years. The way some movies are like, eh, that was good at the time or when I was this age. I'm like, Moulin Rouge, because it is just being this thing that is in and of itself and is not trying to be 2001. It's not trying to be anything. It's like everything I felt about it then, I feel about it now in exactly the same way. And it's sort of like a time capsule in a way other movies you're like oh that movie really hasn't aged well movies don't really do this thing anymore it's like movies didn't do any of this stuff in 2001 either so it feels (laughs) yeah good point it's one of those 20 year old modern films that that does things like that Mm -hmm. and i think it's also interesting to note that like this was pre 9-11 like i think that also is worth Mm -hmm. you know adding to the context again like you guys are saying this was also just aberrant even for its time um but i feel like especially after that the idea of earnest emotion happiness was not a thing that we had in movies a whole lot not for a while yeah my lesson is kind of off the heels of what you were saying brian of just like this is a movie that uses every part of the cinematic language and if you are wanting to learn filmmaking movies that turn the dial up to 11 are useful whether they're good or bad whether you like them or not it reveals the capabilities of those techniques to you so it makes them easy to study and so obviously editing does so much of the work here and i think also you know we've talked about how the aesthetic choices and just all of the what great editing can do i think you can also feel that the editing is duct tape on a right. an insane movie like i think yeah a lot of the times it's managing to do emotional work while also just barely keeping this thing together. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> and I think that's why it's so useful to study and why it was such a, like an influence on me. And I remember making trailers for random just movies that I made up and I would put the Moulin Rouge music on there and suddenly I'd feel this freedom of like I'm just gonna cut to a shot of like a cat or like an explosion (laughs) it doesn't really make sense but I'm just gonna experiment and have fun and I think a lot of editing is doing that it's like you're trying to do something you can get stuck in the way you imagined it happening before. So occasionally just put in a random shot of something else and it'll do something. It'll either make you realize this is definitely not the way to go or it'll spark some idea. And I feel like Milana Rouge is like, that's what the entire movie is. It's just so much stuff crammed together. And, you know, you couldn't sit down and like write out on a piece of paper, like, I'm going to cut to this shot for two frames here. And that's like, you have to (laughs) feel it. And I feel like it's such a great example of that. And it's kind of segues also into my, what are you watching? So Skillshare is the sponsor for this episode. And so since I knew we'd be talking about editing, I was trying to find a, a lesson, basically a course on video editing. And so there's a class on Skillshare called Video Editing Techniques, a practical guide to creating visually appealing edits. And so it's sort of for people that know a little bit about editing, but want to get a better sense of everything that we're talking about, like, how do you approach editing? What is the function of editing? And, you know, the teacher does a good job of sort of saying, like, before you dive in, think about the story that you're trying to tell, what's the emotional effect you want the audience to have and have that in your brain while you're playing around with things. And he also points out, you know, using music and music videos is a great way to Mm -hmm. learn editing because there's a freedom that comes with that medium. And so it encourages experimentation and for you to kind of get the feel of how editing works in a way that then is 
you know, can transfer to any kind of editing style. So it's a cool class. I recommend you check it out. If you don't know what Skillshare is, I'm going to tell you very quickly. <laughs> Skillshare offers thousands of inspiring classes for creative and curious people on thousands of topics, illustration, design, photography, video, freelancing. I've used them to learn about JavaScript and coding so that I can make templates for After Effects. There's lots of things on there. So if you want to learn more about pretty much anything, you can head to skillshare.com slash beyond the screenplay. Uh, and when you use our offer code, you get a free trial of premium membership. Those classes are under an hour. So it's a, like a quick hit of knowledge, which is also pretty useful. So anyway, skillshare.com slash beyond the screenplay to learn more about lots of things, including editing, which will help you make Milan Rouge if you decide to make Milan Rouge one day. <laughs> Alex, what have you been watching recently? So on the topic of tragic love stories, I recently watched Supernova, which is a drama starring Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth, who play a gay couple dealing with... Cute! Well, it's, it's, it's adorable. Yeah, they are adorable. Isn't it really tragic, though? It's super tragic. But like, okay. they, oh, like they're so... They're, they play the characters so beautifully. Like, they really do feel like a real lived in couple. And they're so it's just sweet. I love them. <laughs> it's like a sweet, tender story between these two men. But Stanley Tucci's character is dealing with the reality of being diagnosed with early onset dementia. And so it's basically this like farewell tour kind of like they're going to see all their friends and family. It's really sad. <laughs> it's a very simple, small movie, but their performances are really what it's all about. I mean, it's, it's the movie kind of ends and you're like, oh, it's over now. That was very simple and very small but it's that's not really what it's about it's not a big story it's just about these two performances and these two men and damn are they good yeah <laughs> they're just really wonderful so nice. if you want to have a sad tragic night with stanley tucci <laughs> and colin firth i recommend supernova wow i can barely handle just your description of it. i know i was I know. like i was like getting choked up like as i just <laughs> describing it <laughs> yeah they're, oh, that's such a oh, they're so great yeah. okay cool brian what have you been watching cheer me up <laughs> maybe not i have been patiently waiting for nomadland to come out and become Ooh. viewable to regular people uh who are at home and uh it finally is out now and it's uh written and directed by chloe zhao uh based on a book by jessica bruder and stars francis mcdormand it's about older people who lost their homes during the 2008-2009 recession and decided to start kind of a nomadic community where they uh, would travel around the country and live out of their vehicle and just sort of find peace and happiness in that lifestyle. And Frances McDormand, as you'd expect, is insanely amazing. It also stars David Strathairn, who is gracefully turning from a handsome middle-aged man to a handsome older man. <laughs> he's, he's doing a great job of that. I was going to say, it's a specialty of his. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> The most impressive thing actually is the rest of the cast or most of the rest of the cast where I'm watching this movie going, did this director just find the best unheard of actors in the world who can give the most naturalistic performances? Or did she find real people who can just be themselves amazingly on camera? It turns out it's the latter. They're actually the real people that Jessica Bruder wrote about in her book. Whoa. She found them and just hung out with them. I, I need to watch like some sort of behind the scenes on this to see how these scenes were actually filmed because they clearly are just telling their own stories, but they're also clearly acting like they are communicating with Francis McDormand. It's not just a cameras on them and they're talking like a documentary, 
but it's sort of blurring the line between documentary and movie because these characters are just talking about their own lives. And so it's beautiful to like get their stories, their very real stories, uh, and have them say that. It's also doing movie things. And by the second half, it's like, but now, now it's more of a movie movie, but hmm. still in a way that it all feels, it all blends together really well, partially because Francis McDormand is so good at being naturalistic that you're not going, oh, now I'm watching this actor when I was watching these real people. It all worked like the, the real people are good actors and the actors are good at being real. <laughs> so it just, it all works together really well. And it's a beautiful film. Uh, it's on Hulu now, Nomadland. Great. And Trisha, what have you been watching? I decided to do a double feature of kind of like sexy heist movies that I somehow hadn't seen, basically. Um, Sexy heist (laughs) movies are like my favorite thing in the whole world anyway. So I watched the original Thomas Crown Affair. Mm, Okay. Okay, cool. Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway, and they're incredible. It's really, really good. Really interestingly directed and put together if you have not seen it it is truly as far as i can tell truly nothing like the 90s version which is one that i had already seen no offense to pierce brosnan and renee russo who are also wonderful in that version of the thomas crown affair but um so i watched that and then i watched out of sight which is steven soderbergh and i don't know how i had missed it I'm like embarrassed actually to admit that I had missed it um, up until this point in my life. So that's George Clooney and JLo. And if you haven't seen that, stop what you're doing immediately. So good. And go watch Out of Sight. <laughs> but it's also, it's in the same vein. It's like so, so similar in so many ways of like the woman is trying to catch this this bad man who's like a criminal and but they're just so attracted to them that there's nothing they can do it's just <laughs> uh, so much chemistry um and crime and sex and crime if you're into both of those things which who is not check out both of these films um it's soderbergh it's it's honestly soderbergh like it's Ocean's Eleven just right before Ocean's Eleven right. in in like all the best possible ways yeah. it's really great it's it's the director and star of Ocean's Eleven and it's based on an Elmore, uh, Elmore Leonard. Elmore Leonard, novel. yeah. Also, like Trisha, how have you not seen that? I'm, again, I'm actually embarrassed. So <laughs> I'm gonna find all of these. There's got to be more sexy crime movies that I'm missing, and I'm gonna catch them all at this point. But these are two. These were two glaring omissions, and I have rectified that situation. <laughs> these movies are awesome. So go watch them. Is it bad that the first thing that came to mind when you said sexy heist movie was Entrapment <laughs> with Sean Connery <laughs> and Catherine Zeta-Jones? No, I think that qual- that's the same genre. Yeah, same genre. <laughs> Ocean's 12 star Catherine Zeta-Jones? Come on. <laughs> right. Uh, trademark beyond the screenplay for a film called Sexy Heist. <laughs> that we are all now going to write together. I, yeah. As soon as yes. you said that, I was like, why aren't all movies sexy heist movies? That's... <laughs> That's kind of all I want. Seriously. Yeah. Amazing. Great. Okay. Well, this has been our conversation about Moulin Rouge. We want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. I want to say thank you as well to our producer, Vince Major, and our editor, Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker. I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayaros. As always, our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi. If you enjoy the podcast, tell a friend about it, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.